0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Klobus, your host for the channel. Today, we're talking with John Bohrer about his new book, The Revolution of Robert Kennedy, From Power to Protest After JFK. Jack, welcome to the show.
1: My pleasure. Thanks, Mark.
0: I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
1: Okay, I'm 33 years old. Um, I live in New York City. I'm a television producer on a night shift on a uh, TV news cable program. and I, uh, I worked, I've worked on this book mostly at the New York Public Library uh, for the last four years. I went to Washington College in Chestertown, Maryland, and was spent some time as a speechwriter. and then I got into writing, I did some journalism. I ended up in television news, and that's what I do now.
0: What was it that led you to uh, to write this book? What was it that, that engaged you about the topic where you're spending all this time at the New York Public Library going through uh, archives, going through uh, books to uh, write it?
1: Well, I found Robert Kennedy very interesting in college. I wrote my senior thesis in, in college about Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and Cesar Chavez in 1968. But when I was doing that research, I got very intrigued by these two young men who worked for Bobby Kennedy uh, when he went into the Senate. Their names were Adam Malinsky and Peter Edelman. They were about 27 and 28 years old. They were mid-level Justice Department lawyers. They both worked for assistant attorney generals, attorneys general, and they uh, they were of no particular importance. And uh, it was interesting because Robert Kennedy was the brother of the slain president. He had been the closest to power without actually being president in the United States. It was kind of as if someone like Hillary Clinton had hired just these random young men. So I wanted to write a book about those guys. And as I did the research about them and started writing, I noticed that they really were... Uh, just part of Robert Kennedy's story that Bobby was the constant throughout of it. And in writing about them in 1964 and 1965, when they joined the campaign in 64 and then 1965, going into the Senate, I sort of began to see that there was this middle point of Robert Kennedy's post-JFK life that really did not get the attention I felt it deserved. And it's, it's, it makes sense in some ways because the Kennedy White House and the 1968 campaign were these two giant events in his life. They're these mountains. And in between that is this valley where he makes this journey between those, those two places. And I think in that time period, you can really see how Robert Kennedy became the person he was at the end of his life uh, and really began to, to find his own voice and, and political independence. And uh, so that's really what drew me into writing about this particular period, because it is, um, in some ways, uh, I mean, it's different from most other Kennedy books, because it's only focusing on from November to 1963 to
0: June of 1966. Your, the title of the book is The Revolution of Robert Kennedy, and it's a very interesting word that has uh, multiple meanings. I'm wondering, in what sense is this period, the revolution that you describe it?
1: So the revolution of Robert Kennedy describes what Robert Kennedy underwent. And also it makes allusion to something that Robert Kennedy wrote about in the weeks after the assassination and something he spoke about when he went to South Africa in 1966 and gave his day of affirmation address to uh, the students who were fighting apartheid. In JFK's inaugural address, right before he says "Let the word go forth," he makes this uh, allusion to the heirs to the revolution. We dare not forget that we are the heirs to that first revolution. And Robert Kennedy wrote about that when he was writing his memorial edition of *The Profiles in Courage* uh, uh, forward, uh, the forward to excuse me, the, I'll just love that, <laughs> the forward to the memorial edition of *Profiles in Courage* and in that in that writing he uh, he wrote about change and he wrote about things that you really couldn't imagine happening and uh This is something that Robert Kennedy faced as he began his new life of how do I adjust to not having a direction and uh later, when he goes to the Senate uh after he is turned down for the vice presidency, which he really tried hard to uh to achieved with Lyndon Johnson, he then went to uh, uh, speak at college campuses, and he told these students about this thing called the revolution now in progress, and in doing so, he talked about the ra- rapidity of change, that for a time, the, the difference between travel was uh, this, you know, uh, walking and riding a horse. And that as they sat in Queens College or in Plattsburgh or in the University of Buffalo, there were two men orbiting the earth. And this is a change from, you know, 60 years earlier where they had just invented flight. So uh, he was saying you're going to live through this, this third quarter, this, this third, the rest of the third of the, the 20th century. And in doing so, you're going to see even more change, and you have to be prepared for change and really, the world is going undergoing all of these revolutions, and you're going to uh, uh, you're going to need to have a worldwide youth movement that works together to make sure that's a peaceful one that it's a just one and that really becomes his message as he goes uh, as he goes around the world as he goes around the country. You know he talks to students in Oxford, Mississippi, about the changes that are going on with civil rights. He goes to California and talks about free speech and talks about dissent. He goes to South America and talks to students who are literally uh, in the midst of of actual revolutions, where democracy is still fragile in some places. Uh, he goes to South Africa, where these you know brave students are standing up against a racist and oppressive government and says, you know, you're you're going to stand up. And by doing so, just this tiny act, you can change the world. And that really is the that's the other revolution about Robert Kennedy.
0: It really is a dramatic transformation, considering the Robert Kennedy that you introduced the reader to at the start of the book. Because you describe at the beginning a man whose career is very much uh, a adjunct to his brother Jack's career, and that really comes across, especially when you describe how dramatically uh, John Kennedy's death transforms Robert's political position, because he is, on, you know, the most basic level, he's just incredibly grief stricken. And you, you describe how he is coping with that grief over a period of months. and In some respects, never really gets over it. But at the same time, there is this shift that really illustrates the degree to which Robert Kennedy's political career was very much in support of his brother's political career and how all of a sudden he finds himself
1: unmoored. Right. So Robert Kennedy basically took most of the direction of his adult life from his brother and from family. Uh, in 1952, he doesn't attend his law school graduation because he has to go to Massachusetts to help run a Jack Senate campaign. In 1956, he drops everything to go work on Adlai Stevenson's losing presidential campaign so that he can learn the inner workings of a national organization for Jack's effort uh, four years later. In 1960, they said that, you know, no one worked harder than Robert Kennedy uh, the, uh, around the clock on that race and that he put everything he had into it. And even after the uh, 1960 election, where he thought that he might not go into government, that he might do something else for once, his father, Joseph P. Kennedy, uh, impressed upon him and, and JFK that he needed Bobby in the cabinet. He needed him to be one of his closest advisors. Because JFK needed someone who was going to be absolutely blunt with him, who had no angle, whose motives were never questionable, uh, who could keep him on the right path. And that's really what Bobby Kennedy did. He he tried to protect JFK uh, at all costs. And so you know, even at the end of uh, of JFK's life, Robert Kennedy was thinking about how to best protect him. They were beginning to plan the 1964 campaign. And Robert Kennedy felt that he was becoming too politically toxic to even be a part of the administration or the campaign, that people who had grievances against him for civil rights, whether they be uh, upset that he wasn't pushing hard enough or upset that he was, uh, you know, quote unquote, cramming it down their throats, that they were starting to put it up from just me to the Kennedy brothers. So he was having conversations about leaving. And then uh, on November 22nd, the president was killed, and Robert Kennedy's world was turned upside down. So uh, he had to start thinking about the future, which had before seemed very certain and set. And in that case, uh, he really didn't know what to do. He was left. Um, he was he was left basically concerned that the Kennedy legacy wouldn't mean much at the time. Uh, he was telling people in November and December of 1963 to get what they wanted now because our power will last for just 11 months. It it will disappear on election day, 1964. And uh, while that was a a wrong assessment of the situation, that actually the Kennedy uh, name and and that the the sentiment for JFK would stretch a lot longer and, and and went a lot deeper than that as he would soon see from how people reacted to him uh he felt that the best way he could go about keeping the Kennedy legacy alive was to uh to seek the vice presidency uh with Lyndon Johnson you just describe- said uh, and that's and that's that's really where uh that's the first sort of leg of his journey beyond the new frontier
0: it, it's an understandable assumption of his, given what you describe happens soon after uh, his brother's assassination. You describe how uh, Kennedy had a phone on his desk that was connected directly to J. Edgar Hoover. And basically, you know, it was almost like the moment after uh, uh, President Kennedy's dead, uh, Hoover no longer answers that phone. and how, Yeah, he
1: goes to Florida and when he comes back, the, the line is the line's no longer there. And he says, these people don't work for us anymore.
0: And then you ha- you go from having a, uh, a, a an attorney general who is, has, as you described, daily access to the president and and goes in there uh, not just on official business but of course in his role as an advisor. And now all of a sudden that avenue is closed as well. So in in terms of what was happening to his individual position, it must have seemed as though the 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 power was rapidly uh, uh, you know fading away, and he was you know having to. You undergo this dramatic reassessment now you describe that he has this uh you know quest for the vice presidency and you explain uh throughout uh, much of the first part of the book what why it was that he sought what was a position that uh ironically enough his predecessor w- was was chafing at in terms of its impotency uh and Uh, His predecessor being Linda Johnson, of course, Uh, and and at at the same time, how it really does seem to serve for Robert Kennedy and and for many other people as this important uh, uh, example or or, or, or demonstration of the endurance of that legacy.
1: Well, Robert Kennedy, like I said, thought that the Kennedy name wasn't going to mean much, Uh, and then he he starts to uh to go out and see people and and you know he knows that it's a uh it's a monumental thing the the president's assassination that it's um that it's really uh, hanging over uh, all of the country for a very long time but you know he goes to speak to these uh, uh to these uh, the united auto workers in february of 1964 and he's just enveloped by the crowd there're you know these people who are just w- pushing for him to to shake his hand to to tell him something and and before uh people had gone to him as a person who had the ear of the presidents, and they had reached you know out to j f k through him in that way to get a message through. but now they were reaching out to j f k but to Bobby and he so he it was a, it was a different sort of feeling it was a different kind of power that he had never really felt before, and as he kept going along, uh, you know, speaking to the uh, friendly Sons of St Patrick in Scranton, Pennsylvania, on, on St Patrick's Day in in 1964, his his first real political speech, of uh, after of the of after the New Frontier. Uh, he he's he knows you can sense that there's this this. Uh, This thing they're looking at. The writers of the Scranton Times wrote about how people, you know, how he was looking past the people as if he saw a ghost. That he he looked like you know he understood, and he would tell people that you know they're it's not for me, it's for him, him being JFK. They would see him talking to himself, his lips moving, and Kenny O'Donnell would say, you know, later I thought I thought he was talking to himself. Later I realized he was talking to Jack. So there there was that thing in the back of his mind at all times that, you know, I, I was asked whether, whether uh, who he looked to for inspiration after Kennedy's assassination, uh, his brother's assassination. And the person he really looked to for inspiration was JFK. And he looked to JFK's bravery, his courage. Uh, through all of his sort of medical trials and his his suffering he said that JFK never you know let people know that only the people who were closest to him you know because they could tell his you know his face was a little whiter his, his words were a little sharper but those who didn't know him well detected nothing and so that kind of bravery uh that that kind of bravery influenced how he was going to uh go forward and uh and the legacy that he he at first wanted to carry out was to make sure that civil rights was done uh, and the, the Civil Rights Bill that, that JFK had called for on June 11, 1963, uh, and that Lyndon Johnson also took up as a tribute to, to JFK. Uh, but he he was a, slightly resentful that uh, Lyndon Johnson got a lot of credit for things that he felt were uh, Kennedy initiatives, like the Immigration Bill that eventually passed in 1965, and some of the stuff with education, uh, and uh, and and for the most part that they he, he and people like Arthur Schlesinger resented the talk about Lyndon Johnson's legislative genius because they were saying well if uh you think even one time that uh, Schlesinger talked about the uh, the alternative had JFK been the vice president and Johnson been the, pre- the president at the time and and Johnson been assassinated and JFK had inherited uh, this enormous feeling uh from the country and then a challenger like Goldwater and defeated him handily, how he would have operated in Congress in 1965 in the 89th Congress, and whether he would have been viewed as, you know, this masterful legislative genius.
0: And that gets to this key dynamic in 1964 that you write about, which is the relationship between Robert Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson, and how you have on the one hand, Robert Kennedy seeking to become vice president, as you've described, but he's seeking to do so with a man with whom he has had a famously troubled relationship, and one who has who doesn't just see Robert Kennedy as Robert Kennedy, but sees him as almost an avatar of you know capital K Kennedyism, and and and, and, mm-hmm. and you're getting into that relationship there.
1: Yeah, uh, you know Lyndon Johnson resented Robert Kennedy almost from the beginning. Uh, I don't know as much. I haven't done the personal research on their relationship before the presidential campaign of 1960. But uh, from everything I have read about 1960, uh, Johnson thought RFK was always trying to get rid of him and that he just uh, flat out didn't like him. Now, fast forward to 1963, when Johnson is suddenly president and RFK is attorney general. Bobby's considered considering resigning because he's not sure that he's wanted in the uh, Johnson administration. And he's not sure that he wants to be a part of it. Uh, Johnson persuades Clark Clifford, the Washington fixer to to have a a long conversation with Bobby and they speak for two hours in early December, 1963. And Bobby agrees to stay for the time being. Uh, Johnson decides that he has to clear up some points of misunderstanding about uh, things related to the assassination and related to the transition of power. Uh, related to the assassination is in how Jacqueline Kennedy was treated on the plane back from, from Dallas and uh, related to the transition is in how President Kennedy's personal items were treated in the uh, in the White House um then a few weeks later bobby kennedy sits and thinks and then he decides that he's just uh done thinking about the future and he's just going to serve out as his term as attorney general which he tells uh, anthony lewis of, of the new york times in early january of 1964 uh their relationship then becomes quite interesting bobby's attending a national security council meeting when Johnson turns to him and asks if he can take care of a situation in Southeast Asia. Uh, Bob's sort of surprised by this, and the room is actually kind of happy to see him weigh in. And uh, they all encourage him to go on this foreign trip. Now, on this foreign trip, uh, Johnson uh, interprets some of the coverage of it as helping Robert Kennedy as a vice presidential candidate, Uh, And so when Robert Kennedy returns, Johnson is very cool to him and it kind of seesaws like that throughout the rest of uh, 1964 in which uh, Johnson is angry with something Kennedy has done that he feels is trying to influence him in his choice for vice president. And Kennedy is uh, every now and then offended by how Johnson is treating him or treating other people who would uh, serve President Kennedy. And that kind of becomes the power dynamic between the two of them. Johnson always has the upper hand. And Kennedy is trying to ingratiate himself because as Kennedy doesn't know what he wants him to do, he uh, settles upon the vice presidency as his sort of duty. And that's uh, that's kind of where the book goes.
0: And, and as you make clear, as much as Johnson may have had issues with Robert Kennedy, he realizes that he can't dismiss Kennedy or – uh, or or uh, demean him in any way that he might want to, because ultimately that would not hurt him. He was savvy enough to realize, as much as he may have disliked Robert Kennedy, he needed to he needed to have some sort of at least publicly positive relationship with the Kennedy aura, if you will.
1: Absolutely, there were times when he was uh, very close to anger, um, to, to boiling over in his anger, I should say. That uh, he wanted to fire uh, Robert Kennedy. There is a a tape that I was able to unseal um, and report for the first time in this book, (laughs) in which Robert Kennedy's talking, sorry, excuse me, Lyndon Johnson is talking to his aide Bill Moyers on the night before the New Hampshire primary in 1964. And he says, well, we could ask him to resign and there's a pause and Bill Moyers says that won't do any good. And he said, Johnson says, well, I don't know how, you know, he'd, how he'd feel without all that, his people around him without all that power. Now it's kind of like listening to Donald Trump be talked down from a tweet. Uh, And Bill Moyers does it uh, excellently. Um, But uh, I think Johnson knew he wasn't that self-destructive that he couldn't just fire the brother of the slain president, who, and then expect to not have some political fallout. Robert Kennedy had a lot of support among uh, very powerful uh, northern political bosses who had still a lot of power at the Democratic National Convention. And remember that this is before the 25th Amendment has been ratified. So the vice presidency is vacant and it cannot be filled constitutionally. Uh, without the next election and that the, this is before the primary and caucus uh, process is strengthened so that all of the power really rests with the uh, uh, political powers in the states and um, and the convention delegations. So Johnson had to keep, uh, keep things on an even keel for the time being, and that required uh, keeping some of his... Uh, anger that was uh, directed towards Bobby um, to himself or to his to his close associates. Uh, and meanwhile, Robert Kennedy had a lot of uh, ill will and ill feeling towards Johnson, um, but he was constantly trying to prove to him that he could be loyal and that he could serve in the same sort of capacity that LBJ served JFK. Though I think had Robert Kennedy been successful in his plans... He would probably be remembered a lot more like Hubert Humphrey today than maybe Robert Kennedy, in that he wouldn't have had the sort of independence that he eventually did gain.
0: You describe how the uh, matter was ultimately decided, and it was this very, uh, arguably clever, uh, you know, move by the part on part of Lyndon Johnson, where he, you know, he doesn't say. Robert Kennedy is not going to be my vice presidential nominee. Instead, he makes a, a very different statement. I was wondering if you could describe that statement.
1: Yeah. So in uh, in the summer of 1964, uh, we're entering the final push for the convention, uh, which was in the end of August of 1964. And so in July uh, – J- Lyndon Johnson decides that he has to do something before the convention, um, and well before the convention, because he was worried that if things got there, he couldn't control it. There was going to be a tribute to JFK, uh, and they, the President Johnson's uh, forces moved it. To after the nominations because they didn't want that, uh, that emotional movie played and then emotional speeches made and then Robert Kennedy's name entered into the roll call and then a, uh, a, you know, sort of a demonstration taking him, sweeping him into the vice presidential nomination or even perhaps the presidential nomination in Johnson's worst nightmare. Um, and actually when they do move it and the columnist Mary McGrory writes about it as a, as what it was, you know, a move to, to uh, stymie Robert Kennedy's vice presidential hopes. Uh, Johnson says to uh, his aide, Cliff Carter, you know, how did, how did McGrawy find out about our plan? And uh, so he, he makes the decision to tell Robert Kennedy that you're not going to be the vice presidential nominee. Uh, he calls Bobby on a Monday. He tells him to come by the White House. Robert Kennedy actually stalls uh, for two days and when he finally brings him in he uh reads him a statement uh and he he just reads from the for the beginning for the first few minutes of the of the conversation and it's it's this uh it's his explanation and basically he's saying that I'm only making the same sort of choice that JFK would have made and I want the same sort of freedom and you know I, this is this is what I need to do uh so he tries to get Bobby to make the announcement himself. He he basically asks Robert Kennedy to withdraw his name from contention. And Robert Kennedy is insulted by this and says, "No, he has to do his own uh he has to do take out his own trash essentially." <laughs> and yeah, I I mean, so he and so uh <laughs> um there's this sort of standoff, and and Johnson is getting really nervous, and he's calling Democratic leaders in Pennsylvania, he's calling uh, people in Chicago. He calls Mayor Richard Daley in Chicago and says, you know, if you could tell somebody from the wire services that uh, President Johnson should have his choice as vice president and only his choice as, as vice president, I would, you know, mightily appreciate it. Make sure no one attaches your name to it, and he's really sweating this decision. And, uh, meanwhile, Ted Kennedy tells, he, Ted Kennedy, who is, has a broken back and is laid up in a hospital in Boston, says that I have one choice for vice president and he's my brother. And this is just making Johnson turn white. And so he, he, uh, comes up with an idea to eliminate all members of the cabinet and people who regularly meet with the cabinet from vice presidential contention. So this actually does take out a few people who were, uh, consider, considering, um, they were considered themselves to be contenders like Sergeant Shriver, Robert Kennedy's brother-in-law. And so uh, President Johnson quickly goes about and c- calling people. He calls uh, Robert McNamara and lets him know, "Hey, you're not going to be Vice President." And McNamara laughs uh, on the tape recording and <laughs> say, <So, laughs> okay. And, and uh, after he makes all these quick phone calls, uh, he then uh, he' had a press conference earlier in the day, a little press meeting with reporters. So they, they abruptly uh, asked for them to come back, uh, and he comes in, reads off this statement um, in which Robert Kennedy is the third on the list. I think Secretary of State Dean Rusk, who was no one's idea of a, of a political candidate, was first on the list of people he was eliminating from vice presidential contention. And, uh, and it's, it's immediately seen for what it is, is, that it was taking Bobby's name out of the running. And uh, Robert Kennedy jokes, uh, you know, about taking so many good people over the side with them, and he says, you know, uh, I'm sorry to see you. Dean Rusk won't be, you know, the vice presidential nominee. <laughs> and uh, and again, I mean, it was it was clearly a farce, but it did it did the job. I mean, Robert Kennedy really couldn't fight that, and and he did have a plan to fight it. Uh, you know, he wanted to. Um, he had he had told uh, the pollster Lou Harris in the time that he was stalling that. Uh, that he believed that Lyndon Johnson needed him to perform well in the uh, urban areas, and uh, and especially with this kind of Catholic uh, backlash vote to civil rights, he felt, and that uh, Johnson also really didn't understand how to run a national campaign, and that so he could resign as attorney general, serve as campaign manager, and I think he felt that in that month, uh between the end of July and the end of August when the convention was, he was going to show a lot of the people who were skeptical of him because people still really didn't trust him. I mean there's this whole other issue about the ruthlessness and about the political hatchet man he had been for his brother, uh, that uh that he could that he could be vice president and he could be a good choice and uh and a winning choice. And uh that was really uh what he believed and and when Johnson gave him the statement that you're not going to be vice president, Bobby didn't fight him. Uh, and he, he probably could have. He said, you know, well, you didn't ask me. And in some cases, people interpreted those, those words as, uh, a joke, as a wry joke. But, uh, you know, in other, uh, depictions, people depicted those words as kind of sad. Uh, but I think Robert Kennedy realized, hearing, listening to Lyndon Johnson talk in their conversation about some of his aides, Lyndon Johnson talked about the people who worked for him as not being that great, and Bobby thought that this man is not loyal to the people who have been loyal to him. So how could I be loyal to him? And I, I think that was really a turning point for him as well, um, because you know he that was one of the things he valued most, and that was what he valued with JFK. It doesn't seem though
0: that. Kennedy appreciated uh, Johnson's need to demonstrate that he could win the presidency on his own. You you, uh, quote Johnson making that point in the book, which is that if Johnson had Kennedy on the ticket, there would always be the sense that the only reason why Johnson uh, won was because he had a Kennedy on his ticket that he could never have won in his own right because he was just, you know, uh, Texan from the South, and the South still had a bit of that stigma as, as you know, when it came to national politics. So, it, it, but at the same time, as, as you point out, you know, in a way Johnson does Kennedy a favor; he gives Kennedy that push that, that that Kennedy needs. And granted, it's 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 a risky push because there's no guarantee that Kennedy is going to win public office anytime soon, especially given the dearth of options that were available to him in 1964.
1: Yeah, and so at first, I mean, throughout 1964, they hadn't just looked at the vice presidency. They were practical. Uh, they looked at Massachusetts and found that it was really Ted Kennedy's state, and he didn't want to go there uh, and and encroach on that. And in New York, he, he could consider running for governor, but they discovered that there was a five-year residency requirement. And so, really, the 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 nearest. Opportunity was the Senate race in 1964.
0: Well, they also had to rely now, on Virginia, uh, even though Robert Kennedy was oh, currently living there too.
1: Virginia, Virginia wasn't even on the table because of the just. The, it was really the old Dominion then, and he did. Not, he was not popular in Virginia, and that was still the the uh, Bob. Uh, sorry, the Bird Machine was there, um, uh, and uh, it, yeah, that that wasn't going to fly, even though he lived in Virginia and voted in Massachusetts. So his brother, brother-in-law, brother Steve Smith, really took over the operation of, of organizing the New York Senate race and having it be a, uh, a viable thing for him to jump into when he was ready. Now when Ted Kennedy's plane crashed in June of 1964, Robert Kennedy uh, goes to the hospital. It's actually in Western Massachusetts where the plane went down. And at first it wasn't clear whether or not Ted Kennedy would live. And once it was, uh, he had been so shaken by this that he removed himself from contention from the New York uh, Senate race, though he did not remove himself from contention for the vice presidency, though he could have done that just as easily. Uh, And so when he is finally eliminated from the vice presidency, he goes, uh, he kind of goes off for the weekend to think. Of what am I going to do now? I don't think there's anything left for me in this town," is what he is, is quoted as saying to a friend in Time Magazine. And he decides to make the race in in New York, and uh, he he goes in. He gets uh, uh, he gets the blessing of the mayor, Robert Wagner, who is the most uh, powerful Democrat in the state at that point, because there was a Republican governor and uh, two Republican senators. Jacob Javits, and Kenneth Keating, who Robert Kennedy ran against. Uh, he uh, gets the nomination pretty easily. It's a convention nomination. Uh, he then begins his campaign, and it's, it's difficult because he's uh, not a great speaker, though he had taken speech lessons in the winter of 1964 as part of his preparation for what was next, coming next, as, of political leadership. And uh, he's just mobbed by these crowds everywhere he goes he's over scheduled his his hands are swollen and bleeding and he doesn't really have a clear message he goes and speaks and no one can really hear him for all the screaming he's he's treated like a beetle and uh and so uh so slowly over time he finds uh his connection, his real connection, is doing uh, question and answer sessions with students and young people, and uh, not really giving this sort of pat speech of "this is the, these are the uh, ten reasons why you should vote for me." He wants to have a you know conversation, a, a colloquy with people. And Robert Kennedy then uh, <laughs> is benefiting completely from the collapse of the Republican Party. His opponent, Kenneth Keating, does not endorse the nominee the presidential nominee Barry Goldwater in 1964 and there are some uh independents and democrats who break off from the uh from the sort of liberal angle and and go with Keating who had a a moderate to liberal record and uh in in the end he's carried through though on by substantially less votes than Lyndon Johnson gets in the state
0: Given what follows, it really does seem that the Senate race is where Robert Kennedy begins to find himself politically. Because the scenes you describe of him connecting with students, engaging in questions and answer sessions, those that seems to be a format that he returns to. Uh, later on, when he goes to Latin America, when he goes to uh, South Africa, he it, he see, he he's beginning to discover where his strengths are, where where uh, you know where he works best during the Senate campaign. And, and as you describe, it's not without faults. I mean, he, he, while while Kennedy won, it wasn't a sure thing. Ken, Kenneth Keating was popular. Uh, he there were you know Kennedy had to overcome the uh, stigma of being sort of a, a carpetbagger. I, I, you, as you point out, and I, I must confess I didn't know this until I read the book, Robert Kennedy couldn't even vote for himself because he couldn't, uh, he, he wouldn't have been eligible until 1965. So he's... he's right, running. he
1: was only eligible to vote in Massachusetts, so he and Ethel chose, this, opted not to vote at all. Because, I, I mean, I guess they could have voted in Massachusetts, and it's kind of in some ways poetic because the last president he voted for was JFK. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah, he, he wasn't able to vote. And then actually in 1965, when he goes to vote in the general election in the mayoral race, uh, the local Republican councilman challenges him and Ethel uh, as not citizens of the state. And they have to sign an affidavit uh, to to actually to fill out their ballots. So, um, yeah.
0: And that, that, that kind of thing did matter to a lot of older voters because uh, uh, a lot of these young people who were mobbing Robert Kennedy were not – old enough to vote. The voting age was still 21. And Mm -hmm. a lot of those people were, the crowds were impressive. But you you describe how, you know, a lot of his campaign aides realized that that didn't necessarily translate into an automatic victory.
1: Yeah, there was one, there was one uh, anecdote that uh, I think Gerald Gardner gave, who is a a comedian uh, slash speechwriter for Robert Kennedy in that race, who said that when Kenneth Keating was told there were something like 50,000 people on the streets of Buffalo for Bobby Kennedy, he said, were they all adults? (laughs) And, um, and uh, and that's, yeah, that was, I mean, his big challenge um, in, in, uh, in convincing people that he wasn't for real, that he wasn't some gimmick too, that people wanted to just see this icon being paraded through the streets uh, who looked like and sounded like the slain president. Uh, He, Yeah, and and there were questions about whether or not he really believed in liberalism, because he was viewed as a person to to kind of touch back on what Robert Kennedy was before uh, he became the the Robert Kennedy we remember. Uh, He was ruthless. He was the person who was the political operator. He was uh, conniving and brutish. And people thought that he put uh, votes over principles and that he was um that he would sell people out uh and just do the politically expedient thing that he was too calculating and opportunistic and i mean an opportunistic and just the fact that he went to new york to run for the senate they would they would call him the vice presidential reject this really hung over him for a long time uh and yeah and and honestly it's tough to say whether or not robert kennedy could have won that race uh, in, another, in a different time, in a different climate, when I, mean, I think LVJ won New York State by 2 million votes and, and Bobby won it by, I think, a little more than, than half a million. It was something like 600,000 votes, if I recall correctly.
0: I think he was the only Democrat elected uh, between uh, Herbert Lehman in, I think it was 52, and uh, Moynihan in 78. So you're talking about a period. It which, might
1: have been Avril, Avril Harriman, I think, you know, was, was, was a, the last one.
0: Uh Herrim was governor. I'm talking about the uh, Senate. So, you, you, oh, you,
1: in you, Senate, yeah. yeah. So it, during the state- oh, I mean, no, no, there was this drought for Democrats. It was I, I read somewhere, I'm not sure this is act- actually accurate that that New York had been second to Kansas in electing Democrats statewide for that period, or that which was a you know boom period for Democrats around the country. But um, yeah, t- uh, absolutely. And then they, they then they you know started losing the mayoral races too.
0: And, and so, but Kennedy wins. And he enters the Senate and it's a really interesting environment because on the one hand, he is at the bottom of the totem pole. I mean, it's, it's fascinating how he's introduced into the Senate by his younger brother. And you describe how it's a mm-hmm. complete reversal, a revolution, if you will, of the dynamic that has existed in their entire <laughs> lives. And how, in in a uh, in in a, in a chamber where where seniority is the is the currency of choice, you know, Robert Kennedy's at the bottom, and yet at the same point in time, he's Robert Kennedy, and, and 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 that doesn't go away just because he's in the United States Senate.
1: It's a change for not just the person Robert Kennedy, but also sort of the the Senate, the as an institution. And so, yeah, Robert Kennedy's elected. His younger brother, who's seven years younger than him, who had tagged along with his friends uh, to the beach when he was uh, a, a prep school student and Robert Kennedy was uh, in college, uh, was, all, was suddenly uh, Bobby Shepard uh, in this institution where, also, frankly, Teddy was much more suited uh, to to thrive than Bobby was. Teddy was collegial. He uh, would drink bourbon with the chairman. Uh, he... Uh, he didn't have also the relationship that Bobby had with them before in which you know, Robert Kennedy had to learn how to call them by their first names and he would sometimes flub their names like uh, Maureen Neuberger uh, from Oregon. He called her Marion a few times. <laughs> uh, I mean, he, 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 And he's quoted the newspapers doing so as well, unfortunately. Uh, and uh, so, so there, was, there was that to begin with that you know, he's going from the executive branch to the legislative branch. He's 99th in seniority uh, uh, out of 100 and he's also a celebrity, uh, who you know, he's you know has basically newspaper articles written about him almost every day. He's one of the most watched people on the planet. And so, and and this is just in the beginning of how he begins to even change some of the the traditions in the Senate. Uh, when Ted Kennedy went to the Senate, he waited, I think it was something along the lines of 18 months before he gave a speech, uh, his maiden speech. JFK is something similar along those lines of a, a year or so. Robert Kennedy gets up and speaks on the floor within four weeks of becoming a senator uh, because he has a amendment to this appellation bill uh, this, aid, this aid, aid, aid package and the senator uh, I believe William Jennings Randolph was a senator uh, from West Virginia who had uh, shepherded the bill who had been the sponsor and everything when the bill passes, Robert Kennedy is on the front page, a picture of him on the front page of the Chicago Tribune, not not Randolph. Um, and so that just goes to show how he could completely outshine, no matter what seniority was, and that it was a, a little bit more of a, uh, his power in the Senate didn't really come through legislating, though he was an a able legislator, and he did uh, have some concrete accomplishments compared to what, you know, some people who we consider successful in politics today. Uh, he, though, realized early on that his power was to get up on the Senate floor and talk and to go out and give speeches and talk. And that's really how he moved the needle.
0: And yet you make it clear that he's not trying to be an out-and-out show horse. He's walking a fine line because you describe how he's setting up his Senate office and he's trying to avoid... Being seen as though he's you know, somehow becoming too self-aggrandizing. He's trying to be modest and set up, even though he uh, he described they were getting a thousand letters from people a day. And it was overwhelming the ability of their, their, you know, small staff to deal with it. But he's very conscious that, you know, while on the one hand he is going to use his strengths, at the same time, he can't get too carried away. Otherwise, you know, he has to, in essence, pace himself.
1: Right. He walks back some of the things that his predecessor, Kenneth Keating, had done. He stopped doing a you know, news program on television. He, he actually didn't do a national interview for the first year, uh, a nationally televised interview for the first year of his uh, time in the Senate. He recognizes that he's got to, uh, to make the people feel comfortable in the Senate. He, he takes a seat on a less than desirable committee, the District of Columbia Committee, uh, which is, was charged with overseeing the city, the capital city. Uh, and and he and he attends he attends his uh his, his hearings and he takes them seriously and he does his homework and he actually does make some some difference and and the The other fact too is that because so many people were watching him in those hearings, he imbued him with with some sort of importance at times where people were uh much more interested to to see how he uh interacted with the witnesses and um George McGovern. And it was sort of true for both Kennedy brothers, uh, at the time, George McGovern gave a speech alongside Teddy Kennedy, uh, around this time. And as Teddy spoke first, uh, and, and concluded the gallery emptied out and the press gallery emptied out. And, uh, and so there was poor George McGovern uh, talking, speaking to an empty Senate and he was asked about it. And he said, well, you know, I'm glad that they're using him for important issues. So, uh, so there, there was some trade-off that he could get out of having that power and that celebrity, um, but but clearly it, uh, he, he tried to his best to keep it in check, but there were just there was only so much they could do. They left the door open on, at the Senate office so that people couldn't see the name on the door and come in looking for autographs. so that was how his staff dealt with it.
0: <laughs> the uh, service in the Senate that I thought was most interesting was his service on the health and Labor Committee. Because there you have a issue uh, or a, a, an area which, on the surface, he has no association. I mean, he's a former Attorney General of the United States, and yet, as you describe, his aides are saying, "Don't you, you shouldn't serve on the Judiciary Committee." Uh, he mm-hmm. could go for a high-profile committee like, say, Foreign Relations, and, and, uh, and, and yet he doesn't do it. So he goes on, the, on this on this uh, on, on the on the Health and Labor Committee, and as you describe, it really does. Connect him with this issue, which is becoming much more prominent at the same time, and it it helps in this uh, revolution that uh, is taking place in terms of his political standing.
1: Right, uh, there were a couple of issues that that he went through through the labor committee, um, uh, partially uh, with education and and uh, partially with uh, I, I believe that was. The committee through which he dealt with the veterans' hospitals uh, as well, and I I can't quite recall offhand which ones. They they sort of blend together for me the, the committees. Um, but he and also uh, this is where he uh, first encountered uh, Cesar Chavez uh, in 1966 in in some of these hearings on migratory labor um, uh, in California, where he got to see these people who were protesting and and trying to uh really do something incredibly difficult which was strike a grape field which was like someone the new republic equated to striking a uh, a plant with hundreds of entrances that spanned acres and acres uh you know how do you effectively picket something like that and and then also seeing how they were uh their the uh, the sort of abuses of their of their rights um uh and and their free speech and how robert kennedy stood up for these people and and he was a considered somewhat of a uh a brutish guy of a of a uh state um of a law enforcement backing guy you know he would he would literally say to these uh um to these lawmen out in in california uh to, to read the constitution that you know i understand the the pressures you are under as a former law enforcement official but there are certain lines you cannot cross and therefore you need to uh have compassion you need to follow the law and uh these were things that I think maybe he would not have had uh as up close and personal contact with as attorney general working in Washington varying between the justice department and the white house and his his uh, house in McLean Virginia um, uh, you really uh it, being in the senate brought him closer to people who did not have power and who did not, uh, did not have the immediate, uh, um, the immediate uh, levers of the executive branch where he could pick up the phone and make, uh, and make an ask and make a request and it would get done, that they had to work in concert with other legislators and, um, and really uh, and also see how they could assist people who were trying to make change uh, out in the streets and out in their communities. So in that in that case that Robert Kennedy was able to see how uh people who did not have power um coped and was able to also uh try to convey to them that it's best to work through the system to uh to to try to change things um using uh using the existing means instead of turning uh turning either cynical or, or turning violent. Um, because there was, there was also uh, a a lot of, uh, unrest in that period that unfortunately would get violent and, and, um, not, uh, not, not serve the change in the way that Robert Kennedy felt that you could, uh, make it happen. I mean, he, he was a person who really believed in uh, collective action and in things that, uh, that there was power, um, uh, in in the institutions and that uh, when once people became discouraged, it was going to uh, not be good because there is uh the change was inevitable in this time period and um, they had to find the best ways to handle it.
0: I think that approach really comes out in your book when you're describing his trip to South America, especially when he's in Chile and you describe his engagement with a the communist. Th- these are people who uh most politicians would you know, back away from because they're throwing things at him. They're screaming at him. They're spitting on him. And yet he's trying to engage him. And it's an engagement that on one level is saying, you know, this is a dialogue. This is the political process. you know, work with me at this level. Even though I disagree with you, let's do it at this. And it's, it's very dramatic considering that, you know he's dealing with communists who are are very much, much who are much more focused on having that dramatic engagement than in participating in that dialogue that he wants.
1: Yeah, and it's uh, and it wasn't just theater too. That's the other thing because uh, it's sometimes people go to these events for fights, and sometimes people you know suspected Robert Kennedy of doing things for uh, as a gimmick. Uh, no, he in Chile, in at at Concepcion, he tried to uh, really have a dialogue with these students because uh, he was aware that there was going, there were going to be problems. That this was a place where uh, communism was very strong, and he asked the students to come, uh, the communist students to come ahead of time to talk to him where he was staying. Uh, they sat across a table from each other. They had a uh, a very stern conversation. Robert Kennedy said to them, "You know, I've, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a." Uh, uh, some sort of thug. I'm not going to have a Marine stick a, a, bayonet in you. And I'm, you know, I'm trying to have a cut with you. I'll, I'll speak. You'll speak. We'll, we will all speak and we will all be heard. And whoever's ideas are best are going to win. That's really what our his philosophy was. And, and he, what he felt was he can convey to these students uh, about democracy and that, and it really, and that's, and that's part of the revolution was, was to to spread as, as sort of gospel that, um, that we should be having conversations and that ideas should be a battle of ideas and, and, and let that be the winner. And so, yeah, he goes and speaks even though he's being dissuaded, even though, uh, they don't allow, uh, police protection for, uh, for, well, they don't allow police on these campuses, um, as, as what the local custom was, uh, he goes anyway, and they're, they're throwing rocks, they're spitting at him, they're, they're throwing eggs uh he does comment that they didn't have very good aim because they were hitting all of the people <laughs> around him and so Bill Van den uh, was covered in eggs and Bobby was okay but he goes he goes right up um he he tries to speak he jumps on a table he's, he's speaking with an interpreter behind him and he's just being shouted down the whole time he finally goes over to try to do there, there is some violence there's there's uh there's uh students are fighting with each other there's, there's the American flag is burned uh, Bobby goes over uh, to try to, to, to speak to them directly. He, goes, he, he even decides, I'm going to leave the stage. I'm going to leave the, the, the Rostrum area. I'm going to go back there. And they literally spit in his face and the spit streams down his face. And he turns and realizes, okay, well, you know, we've done what we can here and that, that's it. And so he goes, but it's, it's, still a, uh, it's still a victory for the students who wanted to have free speech, the, the students who believed in a liberal democracy. And then right after that, he decides to go to the mines to see why communism is so strong in this area. And uh, and the the mine overseers try to uh, stop him. They try to send the elevators down. They try to send the rail cars out without him. And he literally chases them down and jumps into it uh, so they could bring him down beneath the ocean to see what the conditions were like. And, you know, he says that this is the guy who would work for Joseph McCarthy, who is the great red- in American history, uh, says, you know, if I worked in these mines, I'd be a communist too. That's an amazing statement to think about a person's development uh, after, after all that. So uh, it, it was a genuine desire to, to have a dialogue, to let people speak to each other, and also to hear from people who disagreed with him and have people who disagreed with him to speak back to him. That's not something a lot of people in power are willing to subject themselves to, no.
0: You end, you the, book, end the book with... Uh, Kennedy's trip trip to South Africa Africa and uh, the delivery of his Ripple of Hope speech in 1966. But there is more more of of a foreshadowing foreshadowing of the future in how you address Robert Kennedy's, Robert Kennedy's growing engagement the with the issue of Vietnam, Vietnam. And, it's, it's, and it's an issue which, on, on, one, level, on, on one level, he doesn't, he have, doesn't have the platform, the, the platform he because the not he's the not on the, on the Foreign Relations Committee, but again, but he's again, Robert Kennedy, Kennedy and, you, and you, just, describe, you describe how he is engaging with, with this issue, which is not which is is as big as it's going to be in 1968, in 1968 but, is, but is already of great concern, of great concern. to him.
1: Yeah, from the very beginning of the relationship between Robert Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson, Vietnam is a sticking point. Uh, Robert Kennedy believes that it's a political problem, uh, not a military problem. And Lyndon Johnson sees a military problem with a political uh, aspect to it. And uh, even when they're discussing, you know, Robert Kennedy volunteers to go and serve as the envoy to Vietnam in June of 1964. Uh, whether or not that was part of his ploy to make him uh, to ingratiate himself with Lyndon Johnson as a as a loyal servant is is one questionable aspect. I'm not quite certain why he volunteered in the end. But I'm sure if he if Johnson had decided to send him, he would have gone. There was also a suggestion that he wanted to serve as a uh, serve in Vietnam and then come back and take a higher position in the State Department, and that was his sort of way of of going about doing that. Uh, but he's having these conversations with, with LBJ from May of 1964 through 1965. Until 1966, um, in, in about February, the Fulbright hearings happen, and the war is getting worse. They're, they're ramping up. Johnson is beginning to experience this thing called, uh, for the first time by a columnist in the Washington Post, uh, the, a, a credibility gap in which people are becoming cynical about the administration's statements about what's happening. Uh, he, uh, the the Fulbright hearings, though, uh, happen and Dean Rusk testifies about elections in Vietnam and Robert Kennedy, even very much a proponent of holding an election in which the uh, National Liberation Front uh, was able to take part and per- potentially win some power. And now there was a, there's a very controversial idea. Uh, in some ways, it's like, uh, letting uh, a terrorist organization take part in a democratic uh, country's uh, uh, elections, um, even though you wouldn't really call South Vietnam a very democratic country at that point. Uh, but the idea was that, you know, you can't let communists into the democratic system because they rig it in their favor and then they take over. And uh, And they had seen that happen uh, in, in, in Europe uh, not long before. Uh But Robert Kennedy hears Dean Russ testify saying that we should have elections. He decides to make a statement. And so he makes a statement uh, in the Senate caucus room. He uh, basically saying, give them a share of the power and responsibility. And we can't ask for total, if we ask them not, you know, to participate for anything not that doesn't involve participating in elections. We're really just asking them for total surrender and that we're fighting a war uh, uh, with a really impossible goal in, in mind. And in that case, uh, he goes, he, he flies out to Vermont to, for the weekend with Ethel and the kids. And uh, there's firestorm rains down on him in which uh the people who he had served with in his brother's cabinet are all criticizing him. Um, the vice president uh, overseas at the time says that it's like letting the Fox guard the hen house. And Robert Kennedy realized, does not hadn't realized how controversial the statement was going to be. So he comes back and he uh, has to have a press conference to explain his press conference, which is never a good thing. And, uh, and, and he realizes, I think in that, in that instance, that talking about Vietnam or and talking about very sensitive issues in which Johnson is, is struggling in a, um, in, a, in a very real sense, is different than disagreeing with him on some sort of health policy or, or different place, that uh, it, it could, it's too politically disruptive and that people immediately reduced it to a personality issue and that Robert Kennedy didn't like Lyndon Johnson, therefore he didn't like his Vietnam policy. Not that he genuinely held these beliefs. So therefore, Robert Kennedy retreated from those issues, and I actually, um, you know, I, I haven't gone too deep in my research into his life in 67 and 68, so I don't want to say definitively, but if, if you ask me, it seems that the seeds of his hesitancy to get into the presidential race in late 1967 and early 1968, I believe, are planted from the reaction to that, to that statement he gave in 1966.
0: Very much at this point, point, a decision to run run for the presidency that is born of his his own political experience and not as as a matter matter of carrying his brother's torch.
1: Yes, I I think uh, I think if he had been thinking about protecting the Kennedy legacy and not about what was happening in the country, he would have sat tight for 1972 uh, or or a later date because he was still a very young man. I think he saw what was happening with Vietnam, and he felt that well, if I don't step forward now, as as so many people have asked me to, and as so many people who've who've asked me have gone off to work for Eugene McCarthy, the senator from Minnesota, uh, who got in the race when Bobby wouldn't, um, that I'm I'm going to lose my identity, and I'm going to I can't I can't without you know honestly say I'm going to support Lyndon Johnson, and I can't say that I'm neutral because he also really didn't have much respect for McCarthy, so. Um, and so that's, I think, really, yeah, the, the wh- how, why he got into it and, and how he uh, went, on, went on. It wasn't about his, JFK's legacy so much, and which which is, you know, again, the revolution of Robert Kennedy. Uh, JFK's legacy is no longer the supreme thing, the only guiding force.
0: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Well, I'm thinking about some local crime stories about Jersey City, New Jersey, uh, a bookie who is uh, who looked like a bum, but that's really all I can say because I haven't done as much research as I want to yet.
0: I hope that it turns out to be a very fruitful uh, source of material for a future book. Uh, John Bohr, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Thanks so much, Mark. I really appreciated it.